Hello, parents, guardians, and caregivers. I'd like to take a minute before the podcast to thank you so much for choosing me to be your child's reader for the next half hour or so, or your reader, adults listen to. (laughs) You can find the list of stories in the show notes on your platform of choice and a link to my link tree that has all sorts of stuff in it, including a link to my Instagram, because today's news is that there will be a live broadcast of Raggedy Auntie Reads on my Instagram. Join me at 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern on May 27th. That's a Friday for a fun new book and a recipe for my favorite summertime snack. More details will be going up on my Instagram as soon as you get this podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I am so glad that you are here. Hello my sweet friend. Welcome back to the Book Nook. I'm Raggedy Auntie, and I am so glad that you are here. Today, I want to talk a little bit about the way that we treat each other. It can be hard to be nice sometimes, and it can also be a little bit hard to get along, and I absolutely understand that. But deep within each of our hearts, we have the ability to be kind. Today, I have several stories about the way that we treat each other, the way other people have treated each other, and one very special story about a warrior who finds a way to win battles without picking up a weapon. Let's get started. Our first story is one of my favorite stories about a shoemaker and how he gets his job done in a very different way than usual. The Elves and the Shoemaker by the Brothers Grimm There was once a shoemaker who worked very hard and was very honest, but still he could not earn enough to live upon, and at last all he had in the world was gone, save just leather enough to make one pair of shoes. Then he cut his leather out, all ready to make up the next day, meaning to rise early in the morning to his work. His conscience was clear, and his heart was light amidst all his troubles, so he went peaceably to bed, left all his cares to heaven, and soon fell asleep. In the morning, after he said his prayers, he sat himself down to his work, when, to his great wonder, there stood the shoes, already made, upon the table. The good man knew not what to say or to think at such an odd thing happening. He looked at the workmanship. There was not one false stitch in the whole job. All was so neat and true that it was quite a masterpiece. The same day, a customer came in, and the shoes suited him so well that he willingly paid a price much higher than usual for them. And the poor shoemaker with the money bought leather enough to make two pairs more. In the evening, he cut out the work and went to bed early that he might get up and begin betimes next day. But he was saved all the trouble, 
for when he got up in the morning, the work was done, ready to his hand. Soon in came buyers, who paid him handsomely for his goods, so that he bought leather enough for four more pairs. He cut out the work again overnight and found it done in the morning, just as before, and so it went for some time. What was got ready in the evening was always done by daybreak, and the good man soon became thriving and well off again. One evening, about Christmas time, as he and his wife were sitting over the fire chatting together, he said to her, I should like to sit up and watch tonight that we may see who it is that comes and does my work for me. The wife liked the thought, so they left a light burning and hid themselves in a corner of the room behind a curtain that was hung up there and watched what would happen. As soon as it was midnight, there came in two little dwarves, and they set themselves upon the shoemaker's bench, took up all the work that was cut out, and began to ply with their little fingers, stitching and wrapping and tapping away at such a rate that the shoemaker was all wonder and could not take his eyes off them. And on they went till the job was quite done, and the shoes stood ready for use upon the table. This was long before daybreak, and then they bustled away as quick as lightning. The next day the wife said to the shoemaker, These little whites have made us rich, and we ought to be thankful to them and do them a good turn if we can. I'm quite sorry to see them run about as they do, with no jackets and no pants, and indeed it's not very decent, for they have nothing upon their legs or their backs to keep off the cold. I'll tell you what, I will make each one of them a new shirt and a coat and a waistcoat and a pair of pantaloons into the bargain. And do you make each of them a little pair of shoes? The thought pleased the good cobbler very much. And one evening, when all the things were ready, they laid them on the table instead of the work that they used to cut out and then went and hid themselves to watch what the little elves would do. About midnight in they came, dancing and skipping, hopped around the room, and then went to sit down to their work as usual. But when they saw the clothes lying for them, they laughed and chuckled and seemed mightily delighted. Then they dressed themselves in the twinkling of an eye and danced and capered and sprang about, as merry as could be, till at last they danced out the door and away over the green. The good couple saw them no more, but everything went well with them from that time forward as long as they lived. You know, I love the idea of those elves coming in and helping the shoemaker make shoes that were so wonderful that people were willing to pay a lot of money for them. And then when the shoemaker found his fortune and discovered those elves, he made them some shoes for their tiny little feet and his wife made them those clothes so that they repaid that kindness. Lots of times people are kind to us and we accept that kindness and then we turn around and are kind to them again. And sometimes we're kind to someone else because someone was kind to us. And that is exactly the kind of kindness that we see in this next story. The Apple Dumpling Story, A Dutch Folk Tale. <music> 
Once upon a time, there was an old woman named Hazel. More than anything, she loved to eat an apple dumpling for dinner. One day, Hazel said, I will bake an apple dumpling tonight. Looking about, she said, I have plenty of flour, I have plenty of butter, I have plenty of sugar, and I have plenty of spice. Why, I could make ten apple dumplings if I wanted to. Then all of a sudden she stopped. Oh, dear, she said, I have no apples. In the old woman's backyard was a tree full of plums. You never saw more plums as round and red as the plums on that tree. But you can't make an apple dumpling with plums, and there is no use trying. Hazel could not stop thinking about her apple dumpling. At last she had an idea. She took her basket out to her backyard and filled it with plums. She covered the basket with a white cloth and hung it on her arm. She said, there may be those in the world who have apples and who need plums. And so Hazel went out the door. Before long, Hazel came to a yard with many hens and many geese. What a noise they made! In the middle of all these birds, there was a young woman. She was feeding them corn, and she waved to Hazel. Hazel waved back to her. The young woman told Hazel about her hens and geese. Hazel told the young woman about her plums and how she hoped to trade them for apples. If she could only trade her plums for apples, she might have an apple dumpling that night. Ah, said the young woman when she heard this, those are lovely plums in your basket, and there's nothing my family likes better with goose than plum jelly. But I have no apples to trade for your plums, she said. Um, oh, the best I can give you to trade with is probably a bag of feathers. Will you take my feathers for your plums? Well, it's not apples, thought Hazel, but why not? One person happy is better than two who do not have what they want. The old woman poured the plums into the young woman's apron. She took the bag of feathers, put it in her basket, and went on her way. Hazel said, Maybe I'm no closer to an apple dumpling than I was before, but at least I'm not farther away. <laughs> and feathers are easier to carry than plums, that's for sure. Trudge, 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 up a hill and down, past a farm, past a brook. Then such a lovely smell filled the air. Ah, said Hazel, as she came up to a garden gate, roses, lilies, lilacs. Never before had she seen such a garden gate. From the garden inside, Hazel heard the sounds of a man and woman talking loudly, and they were not happy. Cotton, said the woman. Straw, said the man. So they went back and forth then the two of them saw Hazel at the gate. "'Here's someone who can help us decide,' said the woman. She opened the gate. "'Good mother, if you were making a cushion for your grandfather's armchair, would you not stuff it with cotton?' "'Cotton? I do not think I would,' said Hazel. "'I told you so,' cried the man. "'Straw is the very thing, and you need to go no farther than the barn for it.' But Hazel shook her head. Nor would I stuff the cushion with straw. Oh, said the man and woman. They didn't know what to think. Hazel took out the bag of feathers very fast. I have something better, she said. Here, a cushion stuffed with feathers is fit for a king. Feathers, said the man. Oh, what a fine cushion we can make with these, said the woman. 
They were very happy and asked what they could give the old woman in return. "'If you must know, apples would be just the thing,' said Hazel. "'That's what I'm looking for.' "'Oh, we have no apples,' said the man. "'At least let us give you something for the feathers,' said the woman. The man and woman cut one flower here and another there. Soon there were more lovely flowers than their arms could hold.' Never was there a sweeter bunch of flowers. They handed the armful of flowers to Hazel. A good bargain, said Hazel, and not all of it will fit in the basket, for she was glad that the two young people were now happy with each other. She wished them both well and went on her way. Soon Hazel came upon a young lord, dressed in very fine clothes and with a gold chain around his neck, but such a frown on his face. He looked as if he had no friend left in the whole wide world. A fair day and a good road, my lord. Fair day? Good road? said he. Maybe for you, but for me the court jeweler did not finish the ring I gave him to make. Now I must go to my lady love with nothing in my hands to give her. Is that what's the matter? said the old woman. Then you shall have a gift for your lady. Hazel handed the flowers from her basket to the young lord. Though I may never have an umple dumpling, she thought. The flowers made the lord so glad that he smiled from ear to ear. The young lord said, A fair trade is no robbery. He took the gold chain from around his neck and put it around Hazel's neck. The young lord skipped away, holding the flowers to his chest. A gold chain, cried Hazel. With this I can buy all the apples in the king's market and have coins left to spare. She hurried to town as fast as her feet could go. But Hazel had gone no more than the turn of the road when she came upon a mother and her children standing in a doorway. Their faces were as sad as her own was happy. Oh, what is the matter? she asked as soon as she reached them. Matter enough, answered the mother. When the last crust of bread is eaten and not a coin left in the house to buy more. Oh, what a day, cried Hazel. I cannot think of eating an apple dumpling for supper while those near me have no bread. She put the gold chain into the mother's hands and rushed off. But the mother and children, every one of them laughing and happy, ran up to her. We have little to give you, said the mother, but here's a little dog. His barking will keep loneliness from your house, and our thanks goes with it. The old woman did not have the heart to tell them no. So into the basket went the little dog, and very snugly he lay there. A bag of feathers for a basket of plums, a bunch of flowers for a bag of feathers, a golden chain for a bunch of flowers, and a dog for a golden chain. All the world is give and take, and who knows if I may have my apple dumpling yet, said Hazel as she hurried on. Sure enough, Hazel had not gone a half dozen yards when, right before her very eyes, she saw an apple tree as full of apples as her very own plum tree was full of plums this apple tree grew in front of a house as much like her own as if they were two peas in the same pod and on the porch of that house said a little old man that is a fine tree of apples you have said hazel as soon as she was close enough to talk to him oh i said the old man but apple trees and apples are poor company when a man is growing old I would give them all if I had even so much as a little dog to bark on my doorstep. 
The dog in the old woman's basket began to bark, and in less time than it takes to read the end of this story, the little dog was barking on the old man's doorstep, and Hazel was on her way home with a basket full of apples. If you try long enough and hard enough, you can always find an apple dumpling for supper, said Hazel. That night she baked herself a delicious apple dumpling, and thinking of all the people that she had helped and who had helped her throughout the day, she ate it down to the very last crumb. Oh my goodness, I just love that story of Sweet Hazel who found her way all the way across town giving and receiving and receiving and giving. I think she is so adventurous and so interesting. And you know what? She's also so very kind. In our next story, we have another old woman who makes her way across town, but this is not necessarily for the kindest of reasons, but I think there might be a little bit of hidden kindness in this story. A Surprise in the Oven, a Canadian Folktale. Once upon a time, a plump old woman named Tante Adela lived in French Canada. She lived all alone with her big gray cat and the cows in her barn. One morning, she got up very early as it was baking day and there was much to do. She took a load of wood outside to her oven. Now why would the oven door be open, she said. She poked a stick inside to see that no leaves or twigs had blown in, but the stick would not go far. Something was in there. The old woman bent over to look in. When she saw what she saw, Tante Adela slammed the oven door shut. She ran out of her yard and down the road as fast as she could. At Felix Bell's farm, she saw the neighbor drawing a bucket of water from the well. Felix, Felix, she called out. Come quick, there's a skunk in my oven. Are you sure? said Felix. Maybe it's your cat. Of course I'm sure, said Tante Adela. Does my cat have a white stripe down his back? I will come as soon as I draw this bucket of water, said Felix. Tante Adela turned and dashed back down the road. She headed for the next farm, the farm of Louis Ross. After all, three heads are better than two. Louis, Louis, she cried out of breath. Come right away. There's a skunk in my oven. A skunk, said Louis. Are you sure it's not a scrap of old fur coat you may have thrown away by mistake? Why would I throw away a fur coat? said Tante Adela. Am I the kind of person who would do that? You have a point, said Louis Ross. I'll come over as soon as I finish feeding the chickens. The old woman turned to the road and limped to the farm of Samuel Roy. Samuel, Samuel, she cried out. You must come to my farm. There's a skunk in my oven. Are you sure? said Samuel. Maybe you saw a shadow inside as you opened the door. Does a shadow have a bushy tail? said Tante Adela. Does a shadow grit its teeth at me and snark? I don't think so. 
I'll come right over, said Samuel, just as soon as I finish weeding the garden. So Tante Adela went from farm to farm looking for help. By the time she made it back home, Felix and Louis were already there. Soon after, Samuel came too, and others who'd heard about the skunk in Tante Adela's oven. Yep, there's a skunk in there, all right, said Madame Ross, who had opened and closed the door. I know that, said Tante Adela. The question is, what to do about it? Uh, I'll run home and get a bag to put him in. That'll take care of that. Ugh, she'll not be able to bake bread in there for a month, said Madame Roy, and everyone agreed. And it would spoil the pelt, said Samuel. He trapped for furs, and he knew what he was talking about. What if we got a dog, said Alice. A dog will bark. Maybe that will scare the skunk out of the oven. If this skunk gets scared, think of what it would do. Ugh, P.U. What if we get a piece of meat and tie it to a string, said someone else. The skunk will come out on its own when it smells it. I have no meat, snapped Tante Adela, and if I did, I surely would not waste it on a skunk. So this plan was dropped. No one else cared to use their own meat to lure the skunk out of the oven if Tante Adela wasn't going to use hers. By then, everyone was getting bored with the question of the skunk, and it didn't look as if Tante Adela was going to serve any food or drink for everybody who'd shown up to get the skunk out of the oven. Soon Felix Bell and his wife remembered they had to milk the cows, so they left. Louis Ross said he must get back to clean the barn, and he and Alice left, and one by one, everyone found a reason to head home. At this time, Tante Della saw Jules Martel come into the yard. The young man might be a little bit simple, she thought, but who else could she turn to for help? Jules, she said. Jules Martel, there's a skunk in my oven. Can you get him out without scaring him? Jules nodded his head. He walked over to the oven. He opened the door and leaned inside. He spoke in a low voice. No one could tell what he was saying. At last he stepped back. Then the sharp face of the skunk stuck out of the oven doorway. Everyone stepped back a few feet. The skunk wiggled its way over the edge and dropped to the ground. Slowly, the skunk made its way through the yard, holding its head high, and it headed into the woods where it disappeared. Tante Adela was thrilled. All the others were amazed. How'd you get him to come out? said Samuel to Jules. What did you say to it? asked Tante Adela. I just told him, said Jules, swinging his arms back and forth, that if he stayed in the yard anymore, he would begin to smell like Tante Adela's bread. And if that happened... None of the other skunks would come near him. Who would have guessed that a low creature like a skunk cares about what other creatures like him think of him? I suppose all creatures have some sense of self-respect, said Alice Roy, no matter who they are. Alice, Tante Adela, Samuel, Felix, and all the others nodded in silence. Now, I think you and I and Tante Adela learned that sometimes it takes just a few whispered words of kindness to get what you need. She needed that skunk out of her oven so she could bake bread, and that skunk needed to get out so that he didn't smell like her bread. I'm really glad that it worked out for both the skunk and 
Tante Adela. Our last story is the story that I told you about at the very beginning of this half hour, and that is the story of the world's greatest warrior. I think that this works out in a way that we don't expect. Listen in and see what you think. The world's best warrior, and we don't know who wrote this one. Corky was a brave young man, an expert swordsman, and he dreamed of becoming the best fighter in the world. In the whole army, there wasn't a single soldier who could beat him. He hoped to become head of the army one day so he could replace the cowardly old general who was currently in charge. The king liked Corky, but when Corky told him about his ambition to be appointed, the king looked a bit shocked and said, Your desire is sincere, but I'm afraid it can't happen right now. You still have much to learn. That was the worst thing that could have happened to Corky, who became so furious that he stormed out of the palace, determined to learn all there was to know about fighting wars. He went to all kinds of schools and colleges, improving his technique and his strength, but without really learning any new secrets, until one day he went to a very special school, a huge gray fortress on top of a great mountain. He had heard it was the best military school in the whole world, and only a very few students were allowed to train there. On his way, he learned that the old general had studied there. So Corky proceeded, ever more determined to be accepted into the school to learn the great secrets of war. Before entering the fortress, he was made to hand in all his weapons. You won't be needing those anymore. Here, you'll be getting better ones, said the guard. Corky was impressed, and he handed his weapons to a little gray man who immediately threw them into a pit. One of the instructors, a serious old man of few words, accompanied Corky to his room. As he left, the old man said, In a hundred days, the training will start. A hundred days? At first, Corky thought this was a joke, but he soon realized the man had been serious. The first days were filled with nervous tension, and Corky tried all manner of silly tactics to try to get them to start the training. It didn't work, though, and he ended up waiting patiently, enjoying each day as it was. On the hundred and first day, the first lesson began. You have already learned how to use your main weapon. Hmm, patience began the wise old teacher. Corky could hardly believe it, and he let out a brief chuckle. <laughs> the old man went on to remind him of all the crazy stunts he had pulled in the first days, when Corky had been so overcome by impatience. Corky had to admit the teacher was right. Now it's time to learn how to win every battle, said the old man. That sounded good to Corky. That is, until he found himself tied hand and foot to a chair, a chair standing on top of a small pedestal and with dozens of villagers climbing up to try to give him a good whack on the head. He had little time to act and the ropes were tight. He couldn't get out of this one. When the villagers climbed on the pedestal, they set to work, giving him a good smack on the head. The very same exercise was repeated for days, and Corky knew he would have to try some new tactics. He tried and failed many times until it dawned on him that the only way to prevent the attack would be to deal with the villagers' anger. 
In the following days, he kept talking to them until he managed to convince them that he was no threat to them, but rather a friend. In the end, he was so persuasive that they gave up their hostility by themselves, and such a friendship developed that they offered to avenge Corky by turning on the teacher. Of course, he didn't let them. By this time, it was day 202. You already control the most powerful weapon, the weapon of words. That which you couldn't achieve with strength or sword, you managed with your tongue, said the old man. Corky agreed, and he prepared to continue his training. Now, this is the most important part of all. Here you will face the other students, said the teacher. He accompanied Corky to a hall where seven other warriors were waiting. Every one of them looked strong, brave, and fierce, just as Corky did. Not only that, but in each one you could detect hints of the wisdom gained in the first two lessons. Here you will fight every man for himself. The winner will be the last man standing, said the teacher. And so every morning the seven warriors would fight, each one disarmed, each one wise. They called for the group of villagers, and the warriors set about trying to influence the villagers against their opponents, using only words and patience. Each one devised tricks and deceptions to attack the others when they least expected it, and without so much as aiming a blow themselves, they succeeded in directing a ferocious battle. However, as the days passed, Corky realized that both his own strength and his villagers were weakening, so he changed his tactics. Using his gift of the gab, Corky gave up the fight, and he proposed using his villagers to help the others recover. His opponents were grateful to have one less enemy, as well as the welcome offer of help, and they intensified their fighting. Meanwhile, more and more villagers began to join Corky's group, until finally one of the seven, named Thunder, managed to triumph over the others. At Thunder's side, there now remained only a few villagers. When Thunder had finished the fight and seemed victorious, the teacher stepped in, saying, No, 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 only one can still remain standing. Thunder sent Corky a threatening look, but Corky stepped forward and said, You really want to fight? Can't you see there are fifty times more of us? These men gave up everything to join me, to help other people. I've let them live freely and in peace, and you kind of have no choice. On hearing this, the few villagers left at Thunder's side moved over and joined Corky. He'd won. The old man then entered, grinning from ear to ear. Of all the great weapons, peace is my favorite. Sooner or later, everyone joins the side of peace, he said. Corky smiled. Truly, in that school, he had learned to wield much more powerful weapons than those he had handed in at the gate. Days later, Corky said his goodbyes, giving thanks to the old man. He returned to the palace, prepared to ask for forgiveness from the king for his impudence. When the king saw him approach humbly with neither shield nor weapons, he gave Corky a wise and knowing smile. What's new, general? Sometimes all it takes is not fighting to find peace. 
I love learning how to treat each other and how to be kind through stories. I hope that you do too. And I also hope that you stay happy, stay healthy, and keep reading. Stay happy, stay healthy, keep reading. Stay happy, stay healthy, keep reading. Until the day comes we meet again. Stay happy, stay healthy, keep reading my friends.